If you're visiting today, we welcome you and thanks for joining us. And uh, please fill out the visitor card so we can get to know you. Uh, we are happy to be gathered today to continue with the book of Hebrews. And we're in chapter 4 today. And we've been talking about Hebrews. Hebrews was written by the apostle to the Jewish Christians who were going against the grain. They were going against Jewish tradition, the old covenant culture, the temple culture. Everything was just radical following Jesus as Lord. And that's our story, too. We may not be going against a temple culture, but we're going against a religious culture nonetheless, the secular culture. You say, well, that's not religious. Yes, the secular culture is religious, too, in its own way. You've got to abide by their rules, play by their laws, and agree with their opinions and things, or you're going to be a heretic. And so we're kind of in the same place. It's not quite the same situation, but that's why these books of the Bible apply to us, because it might be a different flavor of a situation, but we're still in a position where we need the same encouragement, the same understanding, and the same word of truth to set us free so that we can live with God's power in these times. And so uh, last week, when we last left Hebrews in chapter 4, the last verse said to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And today we're going to talk about that because chapter 5 plays off of that. Why can we come so boldly? The the Jewish tradition was you had to come fearfully and you had to have sacrifices and it was a big thing. People had to make trips to Jerusalem, had to be very uh, cleansed ceremonially to go into the temple and things like that. But here the word is you can come boldly. You can have a relationship with God. You can have the grace of God working in your life. You can be bold and not fearful, not feeling like uh, i got to get everything ceremonially in order. I've got to get everything measuring up. And it's all because of what we go into today, the work of one who went on our behalf, the, the high priest, the great high priest, Jesus. Recently, I was in a hotel. I got to uh, stay in a hotel where the reservation was paid for me. And so uh, I was going to go in there and say, I want my room. And I was just bold because I knew this room's been paid for. Amen. I'm going to get this room. And, uh, and so there was a little problem because they couldn't find uh, my reservation in the system, although I had gotten an email confirmation and everything from the person who purchased it. And so I didn't back down. I said, hey, you know, I, I got this email confirmation. I was polite, of course. You want to be polite in these situations. But, uh, I mean, it's boldly. Boldly doesn't mean you're rude or or arrogant or anything like that you, you just you stand firm on what you know is is the truth and what's right and I knew that this room was paid for and so they finally figured it out yeah okay we got it you're, you're, you're in but then they didn't say to me well you're in but since you didn't pay for the room you can't get the free breakfast or you can't use the exercise room or don't think about using any of the amenities no, that's not what they do. The room's been paid for. Somebody's taking care of it. And so I get to enjoy all the amenities. And uh, one time we were staying in Hong Kong, and there was a typhoon out there. I was thinking about this when I thought of this. If someone had paid for this room, it, how silly it would have been when the typhoon came and the people knocked on my door and said, uh, storms are extra. You can't stay here during the storm. And no, no, no. We, 
everything, if the room's paid for, the room's paid for, you have everything. And even though the storms are raging out there, you don't have to be carried away. You don't have to leave your safe place, the place of rest, which we talked about in Hebrews chapter 4. So it's because of Jesus that we have all the amenities. We have all the benefits of a five-star room, and it's more than that. That's just a, an analogy, but he secured everything for us, and chapter 5 goes into kind of the how and why this is, and it goes back to the time of the high priest under the law. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, but remember, when we talk about the high priest, we're talking about something more than the, you know, the person wearing the collar that you see, Father Mulcahy on match or something. We've got some older people in here that remember that. It's not like that kind of priest, but the priest in Israel was a big deal, a person who stood in the gap, who went before man and God to bridge the two, to make amends, just temporarily, though, so that Israel could be God's people and God could be Israel's Lord. So we get a little description of the high priest in verses 1 to 4. So in chapter 5, 1 to 4, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor by himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, so this is just a setup. The first four verses here is a setup for what we're going to see in Jesus. But it's important to understand who the high priest was and what he did. Okay, and I already said the high priest was the go-between. He was the one, the one who goes before us to God and stands in the gap for us. And so he was for men and he was from men the verse says he was appointed for men that means he is a representative for us and he was chosen from among among men meaning that he is uh just like us so he can understand where we've been and he has some sympathy he has compassion it says he can have compassion so he doesn't perform the work unfeelingly he knows the seriousness of making amends for sin. They called it atonement, atonement, covering for sin. And he had to make atonement in the, the, the most holy place in the temple, in the holy place, and he had to do it for the people and for himself. He did it for the people and for himself, and he had compassion because he understood what it was. Now, when Jesus, Jesus went in as the great high priest, and we read last week that he wasn't unsympathetic to us. He was sympathetic. He was tempted in all points as we are. So he also had compassion. But the difference is, is that he didn't have any sins of his own that he had to atone for. He didn't have any sins of his own. He's the only one. There's not one person that's walked this earth that has ever made it perfectly, that has ever been perfect inside and out. You can have a lot of good people, people you look up to. You can do good for a season and so forth. There's none that ever walked perfect except the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it a great honor to know him? He, we know the perfect one, and it's not like he just 
he just accepts us, but he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life as the high priest, and uh, the high priest, what did he do in these passages? It says he offered both gifts and sacrifices for sins, and this was serious business. Serious business, because you have to be very meticulous in the preparing of your offerings and sacrifices, and the sacrifices were very bloody things. I mean, there was a lot of blood involved. And you can go back to the book of Leviticus. Everybody loves to read the book of Leviticus. But, hey, you can have a good time reading the book of Leviticus. When you read all the bloody sacrifices and all the offerings, all the trouble that they went to, and you can have a joyous time reading it saying, praise God, Jesus has taken care of this. I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to get messy with this. God has himself offered the gift and sacrifice. And not only offered it, he is the gift and the sacrifice. He is our gift and sacrifice. And that's the beautiful thing about having a relationship with God. And this was all going to uh, encourage the Hebrews because the Hebrews were thinking, maybe we got to go back to the old order. And he's saying, wait a second, Jesus is greater. And then the priest also, it says, no one takes this honor among himself. So in the old covenant, you couldn't just say, hey, I'm going to grow up to be the high priest one day. You know, I'm going to grow up. You know, you have to be called, and specifically, you had to be called through the line of Aaron. In the book of Numbers, in chapters 16 and 17, you can read where some, some of the Israelites had a problem, saying, well, why is Aaron the one that gets to be in the... Why is Moses, Moses and Aaron leading us? It's because they had the calling of God to do so. They didn't take it upon themselves. God called them, and when they were challenged in Numbers 16 and 17, there was... There was a great price to pay to the challengers. God showed who he had called, and the earth swallowed up Korah and his followers. And uh, then he told every tribe to put a rod in the temple, and the rod that buds in the morning, we'll see, this is the one God has called. And all the tribes of Israel put him in, Aaron's rod budded. All that's to say is that it wasn't something that he took on himself. And yet, uh, it's a calling and an honor. It says that, no one takes this honor to himself, so we can learn that God ascribes honor to this business. And what was ultimately the business of the high priest? To be for the people, to do something for the people, to do a work on behalf of others. And I get something from that. What's honorable in our lives? What is honorable? It's when you live for others. It's when you give of yourself to others. It is a high calling to serve others. And it was a difficult thing for the high priest, but, you know, your difficult work and your sacrificing for your kids, for your family, for your parents, for, for who you work with, who you engage with at school and things like that, whenever you're doing something difficult in terms of the giving of yourself for someone, that's a high calling, that's an honor. God ascribes honor to the giving of yourself for others. And so it's also an encouragement to the Hebrews. The Hebrews were giving of themselves. They were losing their goods and sometimes losing their positions in society. They were yielding themselves for God. And that's the highest honor you can have. And sometimes we just look for things to be easy and comfortable. And easy and comfortable, I'm not against that at all. I like easy and comfortable. Lord, give us more easy and comfortable. But if things aren't easy and comfortable, it doesn't mean that you're not in a position where there is good coming out of this. There is honor coming out of this. And that you can go forward knowing that uh, you are in a place that God 
values. And it's a high calling. And you may not be a high priest, but the New Testament tells us that we are made a kingdom of priests, priests and kings in Christ. We actually are, in a sense, spiritually speaking, kings and priests. And so we have an incredible honor bestowed upon us, and we didn't have to be born through the line of Aaron or the tribe of Levi. We, we didn't have to do anything, but it's because of the work of the great high priest Jesus that we get to get in on it. So if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you have a high calling, and it is an honorable thing. And meanwhile, society was trashing the Hebrews, and society will try to trash us. Society has a warped vision, a distorted view, backwards principles. But in the sight of heaven and in the church, it is an honor to be walking with the Lord and serving him. Can I get a witness? Amen. All right, so verses 5 through 6 then... We'll look at how Jesus came about in this position. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, that is the Lord, the Father, said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So beginning it says Christ did not glorify himself. And this is really interesting because Jesus did not come to earth. When he came, how did he come? He came as a child, right? He came as a baby. He came in the most humble manner. He was born in a very humble situation. And we would have thought maybe God, the Lord of all, the King of glory would have come. Here I am, world. Why didn't God come? Why didn't He could have just come in all His blazing glory and light and, and splendor and drawn the world to Himself through a rich declaration of who He was in might and power and majesty, all of this. Why didn't He come that way? Instead, Christ did not glorify Himself. He came in a very humble situation. Why? It's a good question. I wish I had an answer. No, but I have an idea because I believe we, we have to come by faith. We are here because God wants faith. He wants to see us grow in faith because this is how we grow in the spirit. We build in the spirit. He came in glory and majesty and everything. It wouldn't be by faith. It would be by sight. And we might be in the same position that the devil was in when he was proud and arrogant and fell from heaven because he wanted it all. God has to redeem a people and bring us up in a place of faith where we can be prepared and positioned for even higher things in the age to come. It's already an honor now. Think of the honor in the age to come where we're put to work in the kingdom, serving the Lord, and there's no chance of falling again. There's no curse. There's no pain, no sickness, no sadness. This is why we're here right now, to grow in faith. And we don't want to glorify ourselves either, but the promise is, is that we are glorified. In Romans 8, 29, we have been called, justified, glorified. And Jesus himself, of course, received the highest glory but the whole point is we go forward in his steps. We're not so concerned about the world's love and favor at this point, even though I don't mind a little bit of love and favor from the world, just like ease and comfort. Not, these things aren't bad if you're recognized, but we don't live for them, and we can live in a place of, of that honor even without them. So he came like that, and he came as a son. 
and we already talked about how it wasn't the angels that could come and, and fulfill this position of Messiah. It was the son. And he came as a son. That's a quote from, today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's from uh, Psalm 2-7. And then he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a line from Psalm 110, verse 4. And now we get into this really strange character in the Bible called Melchizedek. Gesundheit. Right? Um, I'm sorry. But uh, Mel. Melchizedek is, this is a, an important but strange character in Scripture. And in fact, there's only four verses in the whole Old Testament that talk about Melchizedek. And yet, what an honor. He's, he's brought into the place here where, where actually Jesus has got the honor because he's according to the order of Melchizedek. This one person who has four verses written about him in Scripture is, is being used to give glory and honor to Jesus, who books and books and books can't be written enough about Jesus, and yet he's given glory and honor through a character that's mentioned in four verses. And then we'll see more about Melchizedek in a couple chapters later in the book of Hebrews. How can all this be? And there's something here about us. You know, we can give honor to the Lord too. Maybe our, our story might just be like four verses in the whole book of Scripture of the world and the history and all the believers and everything that is going to be revealed in the end if, if such a thing happens. But I'm saying you can think that you're unnoticed. You can think that you have a small role and it can actually be a huge role, a big role. And Melchizedek was certainly a big one here. So let's just take a look at him for a moment. There's four verses. What's so hard about reading four verses? So let's look at Genesis 14, 18 uh, through 20. Then Melchizedek, this is a king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, or was Abram at that time, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tithe of all. All right, that's it. That's what you got from uh, Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And this was an appearance after Abram had defeated these enemies that were coming against Sodom in uh, a threat to Lot. And he destroyed these enemies, and then uh, Melchizedek comes out and blesses him, and Abraham gives him a, a tithe. But what can we learn from Melchizedek? In just this short little section, we can learn that he was both a priest and a king. And no, no, no Jewish priest in Scripture ever became a king, and it was unlawful for a king to do the work of a priest. So Melchizedek was a king and a priest. This was odd. And another thing that was odd is that this was before the priesthood was assigned to Aaron. It was before the priesthood was assigned to Aaron. And the other thing about Melchizedek, which is going to be uh, something they make a lot of in Hebrews, is that there was no genealogy, there was no explanation and therefore, there's no beginning or end to Melchizedek. Now, was he an angel? Was he a, a spiritual being or a regular person? You know, probably a regular person, and that's, that's all good.
good speculative questions, but the point is, is the, the symbol of scripture is teaching us to look at him as having no beginning or end. There's no genealogy saying he came from this, 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 or what he was about, and there was no ending to him. And so that's what it means when it says you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You were from eternity, and there's no ending to your priesthood. There was an end to the priesthood of Aaron. Oh, this is a familiar thing in the book of Hebrews. He's, he's saying that Jesus is superior to the old. Remember, this is what's going on each chapter. It's, he's superior to the prophets. He's superior to angels. He's superior to uh, the priesthood because he's not of the typical Aaron priesthood. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not an ordinary one, but a king and a priest. It has no beginning and no end. So that's something we get from Melchizedek. And what does it talk about you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek? That's forever. I'd like to just look at Psalm 110. There's only one verse in there, but it's an interesting uh, psalm, and it would encourage the Jewish Christians at this time who were going through troubles. So Psalm 110, can we look at that? Verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. There's another Jesus as divine because he's saying, calling him Lord. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. These first two verses would encourage all believers showing that the end is that the Lord will reign. You are on the winning team. You're on the winning side. And the power of God will go forth and rule over his enemies. And we will be seen as part of his in that time. And so verse 3 says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Here it is, they've just it's a contrast. The Lord's going to reign in, over the enemies. That's going to be something they have no choice. But for us, in his power, we become willing. We become volunteers. This is the beauty of faith. And the power of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts that we can become willing, that we can see holiness as beautiful. Holiness is beautiful. If you really, holiness is not legalism and thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That might be included, the thou shalt nots might be, but it's not a legalistic thing. Holiness is set apart, none like it, none like and, and different from the norm. A lot of people looking for individuality. A lot of people want to be nonconformist, but the greatest nonconformist thing you can do is to be holy. <laughs> set apart unto the Lord. That's nonconformist in our world. But it's a wonderful thing in the beauty of holiness. So the contrast, he's going to rule over his enemies, but your people love you and are willing. And here it is in Psalm uh, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What a, this is a prophetic statement. How could that statement be made? There was only that passage in Genesis that we just read, and yet through the inspiration of the Spirit, David says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. This isn't going to change. And such is with Jesus. If he's in this order, it's not going to change. He's not going to all of a sudden lose his position. He's not going to stop accepting you. He's not going to stop providing for you. He's not going to stop blessing you, answering your prayers. He's not going to stop all the benefits and glories that he's preparing for us because the Lord has made it and sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
And this, again, Old Testament is a prophetic thing and it's coming to fruition here in the book of Hebrews. And then the last verse there, or maybe the second to last verse, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries and he shall drink by the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. But there it is. That the, your people are willing the beauty of holiness, all of that's in, inside or sandwiched between the victory of the Lord. And there's going to be violence. All right. Everyone likes a good action flick, right? This is going to be more action when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom. And it's not going to be pretty for the enemies of God. And if the Hebrews, uh, the Jewish Christians, were thinking on scripture and realizing this was a quote from this psalm, that could encourage them and say, We're, we, can, we can stay the course. We can persevere because we do know there's an end. The things we're going through right now are not pretty. They might be ugly, but we can stay the course. We know the end of the wicked. So that is uh, all of that again to say that Jesus is superior. He's in a superior position as the great high priest. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you like Melchizedek, then come back in a couple weeks because we got a whole chapter on Melchizedek again. And it's going to be awesome. All right. But uh, for now, we leave Melchizedek and we learn in verse 7 that Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Um, in the days of his flesh is referring to the time that he was here in human form. God came in human form and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is still in human form. In fact, he is as our priest for men, from men. He still appears in heaven as a man, Christ Jesus. He is a man, and he will remain God and man forever. And it is an awesome honor to us that he took on our form that we might be able to take on his form, in a sense. Um, this is how it works. And he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. That means that he as we talked about, he understood what we go through. He understood something of ag agony and desperation even, maybe, with vehement cries and tears. He wasn't praying, Father, I thank thee that you have assigned me this position, and now as I go forward, be with me, Lord, as I go to the... That wasn't what he was doing, right? In the garden, he was praying up with cries and tears. And it's not wrong for us to pray with cries and tears, to have emotions in our prayers, and to be fervent in spirit, addressing the Lord. But however you pray, that's not how you're going to be heard. He's heard by godly fear. Whether you're silent or whether you're loud and emotional, all of that hinges on what is the godly fear. Is The godly fear is a submission to the will of God. I want to read real quickly Mark 14, verse 36, because it says he had tears and cries, um, and this is what it says in the gospel. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. He knows something of uh, 
apprehensiveness. Have you ever been apprehensive about going to something? Maybe it's a meeting or some chore or work that you just don't want to do. Is apprehensive? Even this, Jesus experienced our apprehension and some intimidation there, perhaps. Not all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And here's the secret of this prayer that he prayed. And others, even in some places, it says, if, if it be your will. That doesn't mean you pray if it be your will. Jesus knew God's will. He knew he was supposed to come and die. He spoke of it often. But if there's any other way, he's, and he's saying the same thing as this, all things are possible. That's all he's saying, if there's any other way. But godly fear is saying, nevertheless, I know it's what you will, not what I will. Can we pray like that? Can we pray knowing that God wills us to walk in a certain way or to obey in a certain manner? And it may not be easy. It may not, there's the ease and comfort again. I like things easy and comfortable, but what is the honorable and right thing and what's going to have the payoff? Sometimes easy and comfortable doesn't bring forth anything, but hurt and shame and destruction. Not always, I'm just saying as an example, but oftentimes going through what you know is God's will, even if it's difficult, produces something incredible. And we see that here because it says he was heard because of his godly fear, and the next verse says that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He suffered, went through something difficult, and yet God works all things for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. The greatest good came out of his suffering. The greatest good, eternal salvation. And do you realize how good eternal salvation is? Eternal. Put eternal to the word salvation. A lot of people don't put that word to salvation because they get saved, but then they think, oh, I messed up and God's not, not happy with me now. I got to do better again. God didn't save us or give us a salvation that comes and goes, comes and goes. It's eternal. What he did, what he suffered, produced something that covers past, present, and future. Even past, present, and future. Some people say, how can your future sins be forgiven? Well, if they can't, then what good was the cross? Jesus died on the cross for the future of us all. Everything's eternal. Salvation in Christ is eternal. This is the safe place. This is the rest that we talked about last week. This is the glory cloud of, of heaven that we are free because of what he suffered for us. And this is what makes us volunteers in the day of his power. Oh my, you loved me so much you did that. You came and learned obedience through suffering. What does that mean? Jesus wasn't, wasn't obedient before this? No. Of course Jesus was obedient. But he learned obedience through suffering. Here was one who never knew anything but comfort and glory and he came into a world of suffering so yeah jesus and it says he was perfected was he not perfect well we already talked about that in uh, chapter two we discussed that this is only what perfected him for his office of being the high priest the messiah the savior his suffering perfected him so that he would know and have compassion and understand us and he'd fulfill all the will of God to be the perfect gift and sacrifice on our behalf. But he learned through suffering. 
he learned something that he didn't have to go through. He had never suffered before. He had always been comfortable and in glory and full of the worship of angels. And he actually, on our, our behalf, learned obedience in suffering. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Okay, don't sing. Just preach. Okay. Uh, verse 8 through 9 says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, okay, we talked about. Then, then 9. Um, oh, I just got ahead of myself in my notes here. That's good. So we saw that he came, gave eternal salvation. Here's a good point, too, that we talked about how he is the rest, and the last chapter talked about the Sabbath and how Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. Just like Melchizedek, the Sabbath has no end. So eternal salvation has no end. And there was no morning or evening when it was talked about the seventh day. You know, every day, day one, and there was evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. But when it talked about the day that God rested, that there was no, no comment in there again, is that was an eternal rest that was being symbolized there. So all this means, what does this mean to us? It means that we can come boldly, that we can be bold to come to the throne of grace, that we can be bold to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God because God is with us. God is not angry with us. God looks at us through the blood of Jesus and sees not our sin, but our righteousness. Because it's not our righteousness, it's the righteousness of Jesus. And the word of righteousness, which we're going to finish up on here, something we have to get down as the church, because we always get the salvation message, Jesus died, paid for your sins, so that you could be free and go to heaven, forgiven and go to heaven. But he also died for your, our sins and purchased us that we could be accepted in the beloved with the righteousness of of his very self it's his righteousness he, it became an exchange he took our sins so that we could receive his righteousness and in your spirit by faith by the faith righteousness is a gift and it's yours for the taking and you have to receive it just like you receive i'm going to heaven salvation i receive it because of what jesus did same thing with righteousness i receive righteousness because of what jesus did most of the church gets this confused, and I got it confused for so many years until I was graciously straightened out that it's a gift of faith and that you have to believe that you actually have the righteousness of Christ. Because when you do, you're no longer concerned about all that the high priest has to do and that he has to do it over and over again because you just keep messing up what you think is your soul righteousness, your, your self-righteousness and things like that, and your relationship with God is good one day, the next day it's bad because, oh, you had some wrong thought or spoke a word out of season or maybe you did something worse. It always comes back to it's not your righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness, and that doesn't change. It is an eternal salvation. If you can believe that, it's yours. It's a gift. And if you can believe it and live in it, it can change the way you live. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you start to think of yourself, I'm not a miserable sinner. I'm not a failure. I'm not a wreck. I'm not a mess. I'm actually God's honored one who he has given his own righteousness to, and I can walk in the beauty of holiness. That's who I am. 
it takes faith for that because you know you know yourself too well you know i i don't see that happening in myself but okay by faith i'm gonna believe it and receive it and then i can move forward and i can face the lions i can move forward i can face the circumstances the trouble knowing that i have a god who's for me and not against me because everything's right with us the the high priest has reconciled us and made us one together in a loving way so these final verses here verses 10 through 11 are going to amplify what i just told you and say this is this encouragement is going to turn to a rebuke now we're going to get a rebuke because uh this word of righteousness was not um moving them they were not operating from this they were they were uh fluctuating and going back and forth as well maybe we're not in the right place they if you can stay put and start to grow in the message of righteousness and in what jesus has accomplished according to the order of melchizedek then you take off you you become from just freshly born again to now i'm growing and i'm becoming a disciple so let's see what he says of whom we have much to say verse 11 and hard to explain Melchizedek's hard to explain to you since you have become dull of hearing. Well, that's not very nice, Paul. Why are you saying this to us? You know, I thought you were my friend. You're trying to encourage me. You know, sometimes a rebuke is the best thing a friend can do. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, a friend can give you wounds in the wrong way. Let's have gracious gracious wounds we don't want to hurt people but we do want to like a surgeon a surgeon may have to create a wound to heal something right and so paul's saying you've become dull and the question for us is how do you become dull we all have become dull they started with passion they started on a good track we started with passion on a good track but then life hits and the thrill wears off the honeymoon's over and that passion starts to wane a little bit can anybody relate? What happens when the passion starts to wane? Passion doesn't always keep us. We have to learn how to keep passion. Right? Does that deserve repeating? Passion doesn't always keep us. We have to learn how to keep passion. We have to recognize when the fire's going down or when we're becoming dull. Nobody wants to be dull. We want to be the life of the party, right? <laughs> so we want to be passionate. The life of the spiritual party. Um, so how do you keep passion alive? Well, what do you feed your mind with? Who do you hang out with? What are you doing? Or what can you do to keep your passion alive? There are things you can do. Just like exercise. If you feel like you're weak in an area, you might want to build up your faith muscles. You might want to build up your muscles and start to take measures one of the best ways to keep passion alive is to start giving of yourself, of your, of your resources, giving of yourself to the word of God, giving to yourself to prayer, giving yourself in, in helping others. But it's, a, it's, it's, it's action that brings out the passion. A lot of people wait till, oh, I'm get, well, when I get excited, then I'll try to do something. But, you know, you get excited by doing something. You get excited by getting into the things of God and, and taking steps living in what he's calling us to 
in verse 12 through 14. We'll wrap this up. And, and you know, he's still rebuking. And this just wouldn't fly in our culture. And maybe you don't appreciate us going over these verses here. I, you know, our culture doesn't like to be rebuked. You know, don't tell me that I need to be corrected. Right? Don't tell me. Because, you know, you, you're not so great yourself. Uh, reminds me of that joke. Uh, someone said, Sergeant, the troops are revolting. And he says, well, you're no pretty pig yourself. <laughs> no, we don't like to be rebuked, and we, we look at it as a, as a bad thing. But I think uh, in past culture, I think people could handle it more. But again, the wounds of a friend are faithful. And if a rebuke can help me get stronger and put me on the right track, you know, like, hey, wake up, slap, slap that face. And, oh, thank you, thanks, I needed that. You know, something like that. That's where it's good. So whenever we see the rebuke in Scripture, or whenever God gives us a rebuke, it's for our good. It's because he wants better from us, and he wants, maybe that rebuke is just a simple reminder, like, oh, yeah, I forgot. So this last uh, couple of verses here, verse 12 says, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Again, your senses are exercised. When you do, that's when you discern good and evil. But what is this? You ought to be teachers. Is everyone ought to be a teacher here? Yes. Does that mean you're going to teach a Sunday school class? Not necessarily, but your life teaches. And that's what a disciple does. He's talking about don't stay a babe. You ought to be a disciple. That's the whole point of our still being here. What is a disciple? A disciple is like an apprentice, one who receives and learns a master, master something in order to, to uh, put it, well, I wrote it down better than I'm remembering to say it. So I'll just read what I said. Yeah, apprenticeship, discipleship, studying for a craft with the intent that you will pass it on. That's what a disciple is. Go and make disciples. Be teachers. Studying a craft with the intent that you're going to pass it on. Now, there's three different types of people in the church. Which one are you? And if it's a rebuking sound, don't take it as a nasty thing to say, Where can I, what can I do? But one, there are people who learn and they teach. Two, there are people who learn and they don't teach. And then three, there are people who don't hear or learn, and they never grow spiritually. All right, so the answer is you want to be number one, those who learn and teach. Now, again, it doesn't mean that you have to teach a class or you have to always be in someone's face saying, that's not right, that's not what we're talking about here. But I think of my good friend Elizabeth, uh, who I knew up in Boston. She's no longer here. But when I knew her, she was going through a battle with cancer. And she just came to church where I was preaching up in Boston while I was at school up there, and she would always be glowing. You wouldn't think she was battling cancer, but she was glowing. And I'd ask her how she's doing, and she just always never heard any grumbling, never heard any complaining, always heard words of optimism. I know God's going to heal me. I know God's going to do this. And, and then she'd just get all excited say, 
Rick, I just told so-and-so about the gospel, you go, because this has given me opportunity to share with people and all that. And I just said to her, I said, you know what? You are the teacher right now because you are showing people what it is to live in faith in a desperate situation. And she really was. Her life was inspirational and encouraging, and she eventually beat the cancer. And even if she didn't beat the cancer, she would have been teaching how to live for God and being in faith even though things were looking adverse to it. And that might have brought even the greater reward. And eventually, I guess that's what happened, because years later, she's older, and it came back. And, and you know, I, I tend to think she just wanted to go home, because <laughs> she loved Jesus so much. But she was, again, I would be calling her up on the phone, and because I wanted to encourage her, and it ended up being me that was being encouraged. <laughs> And she'd say, oh, Rick, I got to witness to the nurse the other day, and she's going to come to church, all this stuff. She was the teacher. And, you know, we all can aspire to be better teachers in that sense. And, hey, if you want to teach a Sunday school class, come on. All right? But, you know, our lives are speaking. And the problem is that he's saying that you guys, you should be knowing these things now, but you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. And that's the solid meat. He's saying you still need to hear the first principles, milk. When he talks about solid meat here, he's not talking about doing a precepts Bible study. Nothing against that. He's not talking about a, a deep dive into theological issues and parsing the Greek and things like that. He's talking about what propels you, what you end up using and exercising so that you may discern good and evil. What word is going to get you further in your faith walk that's going to give you more power to, to face the day and to be the teacher to others? with your life. That's the solid meat. And if you're just stuck in the first things and say, yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and, and, and not learning how to grow in exercising and discerning between good and evil. What does he mean by that? Well, I think it talks pretty much about how you respond. Faith is a response. Faith isn't just, a, I believe this, this, and this, and this is my theology, and this is what I think this is all about. That's, that's good, whatever. But faith is a response. Here's what the word says. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That means it's forever, and I'm in him, and I'm safe. I'm in the place of rest, and his righteousness has become mine. Being skilled in the word of righteousness. And how does that affect how I respond to criticism? Someone criticizes me. Well, then I get all offended and huffy, and I say, well, what about you? No. If I'm skilled in the word of righteousness, I understand that I'm accepted in, in the Lord, and I'm at peace because God loves me and you know if you criticize me okay I'll take it and see if it's worth something but I'm not going to get offended because you think something's wrong with me right I'm not talking about me I'm just saying this is how we're supposed to respond of course I want to know if I need to be corrected again winds of a friend are, are faithful but how you respond it makes the teaching difference how do you respond at home man how do we act at home shut the door I'm guilty <laughs> You know, we, we tend to get loose with the people we love the most. Why are we so friendly to strangers out in public and we'll be all polite and cheery and if someone cuts us off, we'll say, that's okay, after you. But at home, someone does one little thing. Boom! You miserable! No, we have to be at peace and understand the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness is that the grace of God covers us in all our failures. The grace of God... You know, how many times have I cut off someone on the road... I understand that I was wrong, so I'm not going to get all mad and, and give the one-finger wave to someone who cuts me off, right? You can be gracious 
<laughs> sorry, look, that wasn't good, but that's what people do. I don't need to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But getting upset, getting upset. I mean, we, it's natural to get upset, but the word of righteousness brings grace to us. We've messed up, and God accepts us, and uh, that's how we do it. How do we respond to criticism? How do we respond at home? How do we respond among peers when all our peers are going one direction and we get the pressure that we've got to be in league with them or they're not going to accept us? Well, the word of righteousness in us is I'm accepted and the beloved. If God accepts me, what difference does it make if so-and-so accepts me? God's over my life. He'll, he'll bring me what I need and he'll put me in relationships that are good and healthy. How do we respond to these situations? This is where it gets to be in real life temptation. There's temptations to sin all the time, but do we understand what God's righteousness in us has put us together with him and that he's got all the blessings in heavenly places for us that why would we want to yield to something that's going to take us down? And we've got a hope and a future in the Lord because of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's why we can be passionate because he went through the passion. He went to the cross. He learned obedience through suffering. He went through the passion. That ought to make us passionate and say, I want to go through whatever it takes because what comes after that is a resurrection. That's where the life, the glory, the power, and it's available now and not just in the future. If we go through a little bit of yielding and dying to ourselves, we get that little bit of resurrection, glory, and power now. And then ultimately, in the day of his power, when he comes and reveals that to the world, we go up with him and reign forever in eternity with Christ. It's a good deal for such a short time here. Hopefully that encourages you to press on. Hopefully it encourages the Hebrews to keep going. We need to encourage each other because, again, the days are rough and scary, and, oh my, faith will get us over. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world.